0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this episode, we have a most amazing story about attempts to save the nation's art during the Second World War – What nation are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the United Kingdom. We had Laura Morelli on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about what happened in France and the attempts to save Leonardo da Vinci's greatest works from Hitler and his henchmen. Well, this time we have Caroline Shenton, the brilliant archivist who has just written a new book called National Treasures. In it, Caroline shares the interwoven lives of ordinary but i would say quite extraordinary people who kept calm and carried on in the most pressing stressful damning circumstances as they foresaw invasion as part of hitler's operation sea line and before that quite early worries about what this new fearful fearsome technology air power could do to the galleries the archives and the museums in London and across some of Britain's largest cities and so of course they had to do something about it in an attempt to save the nation's historic identity and that's the story we are here all about today. So here is Caroline Shenton on National Treasures. Enjoy. Hi Caroline, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today?
2: Fine, thank you, James. Really pleased to be here.
1: Yeah, we're really happy to have you on the podcast. Where in the world are you? I'm in Cambridge, city centre in England. Wonderful. That is my backyard. I am, I'm from Peterborough originally. Oh, Great rivalry there between the two football teams, <laughs> between Peterborough and Cambridge, and I could sing a song that is not suitable for younger listeners. Are you engaged much in the football life of Cambridge, Caroline?
2: Probably, it's fair to say, zero.
1: Zero. Okay. All right. Well, you might be doing other things there that some might argue, those who listen to this podcast, perhaps, are slightly more important. Perhaps writing important books about vital histories of the Second World War. Would that be fair to say?
2: Well, certainly my latest book is about a really important part of the Second World War, which is largely forgotten.
1: Largely forgotten. That's what we like here on this podcast we like to say we're on the front line of military histories. I actually really think that this one is largely forgotten. It's not a topic I've really heard too much about until we had, last month, we had Laura Morelli on the podcast and she spoke to us about the Nazi hunt for the Mona Lisa and this crazy story of how it was chased all around France and hidden in different monasteries and great manor houses and salt mines and I wanted to hear more about this and in the context of different countries and so we're going to talk about it in the context of the UK today because as Hitler got ever more aggressive prior to the second world war the men and women across London's museums galleries and archives they they formulated this ingenious plan to send the nation's highly prized objects to safety but when did they really start to take this threat seriously?
2: Well, what's really fascinating is that the very first actions took place the same week that Hitler came to power in 1933, when a top secret cabinet subcommittee of the ARP Precautions Committee was pulled together and comprising the directors of London's main museums, galleries and archives started to think about what would happen in the event of war. So that seems extraordinarily prescient today, doesn't it?
1: It does. It also makes you think, where should you look in terms of when you look to the archives and you look for these rumblings of when people think the war was going to begin during the interwar period? Should you look in the, the highest level policy meetings? Or should you look in perhaps some of the stranger places? Because I think it's fair to say this would be a stranger place to look for warnings for war, wouldn't it?
2: Well, the records are at the National Archives. Well, the, the central records are in the National Archives at Kew, of course amongst the work department, which is the Office of Works, the government department, charged with finding requisitioned accommodation for a whole host of government functions. But then, of course, there are the local records in the museum and gallery's own archives as well, which I drew on, and then people's own memoirs and letters and so on, some of which have been published and some of which haven't. So it wasn't difficult to find
1: stuff. No, but if you were looking for the signs that war was was coming. It wouldn't be the first place you look, perhaps. And I'm just wondering what made them think that this was necessary? Is this a kind of broader planning precaution, like how do you collect taxes in the event of nuclear war? Or were they specifically worried about the threat and the rise of fascism and Hitler?
2: I mean, there had been a defence subcommittee since 1924, tasked with keeping an eye on what might happen next time round. This is the generation who'd survived the First World War. And there was, I think, a really strong sense that something was going to happen in the future. So all the way through the 1920s, the government was keeping tabs on what the civilian response ought to be. And then 1933 came along, and all of a sudden, the Air Raid Precautions Committee, which had been set up, started to spawn a series of these smaller working groups looking at the specific threat and people's perceptions in the 1930s certainly in the UK was that there was going to be an aerial bombardment of the capital as soon as any war was declared that was the preoccupying worry for everybody and that again for this generation that had lived through the first world war that that aerial bombardment that lightning strike was going to be combined with poison gas Of course, we know that didn't happen, but that's how people felt at the time. And you can see it reflected in literature of the time. So H.G. Wells' Shape of Things to Come, this idea that there will be, you know, an immediate sort of aerial fight over the capital as soon as war is declared. That's a central part of his novel. And even something like The Hobbit, even a children's book like The Hobbit, Smaug, the dragon in Hobbit, who suddenly descends upon Lake Town can be seen in that same light as well, published in 1937. So there was this major preoccupation with future war being likely to come from the air. And therefore, what are we going to do to protect national treasures in our galleries,
1: museums and archives? So this was a governmental reaction to the emergence of a a relatively new technology, and a new, quite terrifying form of warfare. This this death from above. And you're right, during the mid to late 1930s, there were these, well, rather large pressure movements of, of people ranging from, I suppose, Vera Brittain through to George Orwell talking about the future of air power and some of the ways in which civilians are really going to be brought into the war in the future. And alongside that, of course, it's going to mean buildings like art galleries and archives and museums are not going to be kept out from the horror Of war. So, was this a relatively unique thing for the time? There hadn't been such planning committees for the First World War. This was largely about the damage wrought by air power.
2: There hadn't been planning committees like this in the First World War. However, towards the very end of the First World War, when there were those Zeppelin raids on London, some of the major institutions did send away a very small handful of their absolutely top treasures. They were sent away often into the underground the London Underground. And in the case of the British Museum Library, today the British Library, they sent some of their top treasures to the National Library of Wales in Aberystwyth. And so it was natural when they were doing their planning for the top treasures of the British Museum Library that they contacted the National Library in Aberystwyth again.
1: So there were already rumblings and worries from the very early Zeppelin raids, I mean, that makes perfect sense. You look at some of the photos of the damage that they caused to places like Lowestoft or up in Hull, and it, it, it's clear to see, uh, perhaps at this point, what the future of war is going to be, look like and the damage is going to come from the air. So tell us as we move through from 1933, what sorts of precautions are we talking about? What is recommended by the committee or indeed what is put in place?
2: Well, the committee produced a little booklet, which was originally designed to provide advice for local county and civic museums and galleries. That was their first effort. But then as the 1930s moved onwards, the committee started to look at which properties should actually be identified as safe havens for paintings, Greek vases, doomsday book and so on. And a list was drawn up of likely country houses ranging across England and into Wales. Museum directors, however, had leeway to make their own arrangements as well. So, for example, Kenneth Clarke at the National Gallery decided not to go down the country house route. He decided to go straight to Wales and book to the National Gallery's uh, paintings into a couple of places on the north coast near Bangor. So Penryn Castle near Bangor and also Bangor University as well. So there was quite a mixed response. But by the time of the Munich crisis, which really provided a dress rehearsal for their plans, most of the museums had a pretty good idea of what they would do. So yeah, the Munich crisis really was a chance to practice and quite a few lessons were learned about what sort of transport was best, what sort of packing was best, the speed of response that was needed, just a way of ironing out all of those little tips and wrinkles that people learned from uh, the following year.
1: So Chamberlain brings about a short-lived peace over that period and some people sleep a long and peaceful sleep over those weeks. But those who are planning, those who are trying to see whether or not there is going to be this long and rumbling air raid coming across that will destroy these key and well, national treasures, I suppose that we could call them, couldn't we? Do they sleep? Do they rest? Or do they keep this planning going? Are they taken in by some of the promises of the Munich Agreement? Or do they foresee a very different future?
2: No, absolutely not. So a lot of these London curators felt that this was just a temporary respite and that danger was around the corner. So they used the opportunity of a few months more just to get their plans in place. And in some cases, some of the items that were packed up were not unpacked again. They were simply kept in their crates, ready to go.
1: I see. Well, much of Britain did use that period to to ready themselves for war, including those creating armaments as well, of course, So take us through some of these key assets. What was prioritised to start with? You mentioned the Doomsday Book. Is that a clear example of one that we should track and follow? Which ones tell us perhaps most iconically about where these pieces of art and national treasures went?
2: Well, Doomsday Book is a really good example. And in fact, this is how I first became interested in this story. I'm an archivist by training. And my first job was at the public record office, then in Chancery Lane today the National Archives at Kew. And while I was there in the early 1990s in my first job, I heard the story of what happened to Doomsday Book, which was that it was evacuated in the days before the war in an armed van all the way down the Great West Road to Shepton Mallet Prison in Somerset in the southwest of England. And so successful was the van at getting down that uh, this major trunk road in good time, that they arrived half an hour early. So they parked up by the Market Cross because the prison wasn't quite ready for them and went off to have a pint of cider in a nearby pub, leaving the van unlocked, which rather defeated the object of having all of those armed precautions in the first place. So that story stayed with me. Actually, when I came to do the more detailed research, I discovered that it wasn't a pint of cider, it was actually a cup of tea. But nevertheless, they had (laughs) left Doomsday Book, which is England's oldest public record, William the Conqueror's great land survey of his new kingdom from 1086, unprotected in the back of the van with a range of other treasures from the public record office, including Shakespeare's will, for example. So that set me off on a journey. Then subsequently, I became Director of the Parliamentary Archives. And we were also very aware of what had happened to our records in the Second World War, because in fact, at that time, Parliament didn't have its own archive function. And really, the records were evacuated from the Houses of Parliament and just dumped in a stable of a stately home called Laverstoke Park in Hampshire, in southern England, which belonged to a member of the House of Lords, But they were completely unsupervised, unlike many of the other treasures that did get evacuated. As a result, they came back at the end of the war covered with mould and mildew in a terrible state. Actually, as part of my professional life, I was aware of the conservation history of some of our objects, which formed quite an important part of the overall story of the archive. So it was stories like that that set me off on this journey towards piecing together what about 12... National Museums and Galleries in London did during the war. It's really a sort of reverse Monuments Men's story, if you like. It's really about this, this extraordinary band of eccentric curators, mild-mannered civil servants, and frankly, metropolitan aesthetes who you wouldn't normally expect to get involved in the fighting, who actually, as a result of their activities, really became the front line of the Heritage War in England.
1: Yes. I mean, they were definitely involved in the war effort in their own ways, although it sounds like some rather dodgy decisions were made. I'm sure if you met that member of the House of Lords today who shoved the parliamentary records in his barn, it might be a bit of a slap on the wrist. But a lot of them were taken better care of, weren't they? So did archivists or researchers often stay with some of the the most prized pieces? Was there somebody most physically stationed with them to take care of them and and look after them. I know that the Mona Lisa, for example, in the context of France, had someone with it at all times in a lined box and wherever it was carried around the country. Is this the same for some of Britain's greatest treasures?
2: Yes. So the curators from the museums would accompany the collections. They'd also take with them the museum warders, perhaps, who had been used to looking after the collections back in London, who'd been used to moving them around in the repositories or taking them off the walls and so on when they needed cleaning. So really many teams from each of the galleries or museums headed out with their collections and ended up either living alongside them in the country houses where they ended up or billeted very locally in the villages close to where the items had been found a safe house. And it was a great opportunity, really, for many of the curators to study these objects in a way that they'd never had a chance to before. The experience of the National Gallery, for example, was that they were able to actually look up close on some of London's greatest paintings for a period of six years and really study them and catalogue them in detail.
1: your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a
0: flight thinking you're heading on holiday but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein.
2: All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel and I've never seen anything like it in my life.
0: Imagine being
1: used as a human shield, put in the line of fire
0: We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are.
1: That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history.
2: We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was
0: there.
1: Subscribe now.
0: And Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions, like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: So which ones should we note here? Which were evacuated from the capital?
2: Some of the great treasures, well, let's take, for example... The Banqueting House ceiling in Whitehall. Oh wow. Reuben's great masterpiece, The Apotheosis of James I, commissioned by Charles I, James I's son, in 1636. And 13 years later, Charles stepped out of the windows of the banqueting house and onto the scaffold and was executed. But the ceiling survived. Well, that was under huge threat during the Blitz in the autumn of 1940, and having originally been planned by the Office of Works for that to stay in situ. It was decided, no, that really, really had to move. But unfortunately, at the beginning of the 20th century, Rubens' canvases had been pasted to extraordinarily <laughs> pasted <laughs> to a plywood backing, so it wasn't possible to roll them up and get them out. And in fact, the panels that they were on were too big to get through the windows of the Banqueting House. So in the end, the ceiling was sawn up into 21 separate pieces and passed out through the windows and onto a removal van and went off to a country house in Buckinghamshire. The Crown Jewels from the Tower of London ended up going to Windsor Castle where they were buried in a Bath Oliver biscuit tin. So Bath Olivers, for those who aren't familiar with them, are a sort of buttery, savoury cracker used to uh, accompany your cheese and the Royal Librarian prized off the main jewels of the crown jewels from various crowns um, belonging to British monarchs. And the core of the top jewels, like the koh or and the Black Princess Ruby, were stuck inside this tin, <laughs> which, of course, he could grab. He could seize them at any time if there was invasion. And he could get away with them fast in this non-bulky way. And they could form... The nucleus of a new set of crown jewels, if that were needed. And what I found very interesting about some of these stories is that actually the curators and custodians themselves very often had very distinguished war records. They'd lived through the First World War as young men and in some cases young women. By the late 1930s and 40s, they were now in middle age and sort of quite senior in their professional roles but they'd have still been extremely handy with a gun, and they'd have been extremely handy in defending their collections. So, for example, the Royal Librarian Owen Mooreshead had been awarded a military cross. So you wouldn't have wanted to mess with him if you found him on a dark night with a bath of a biscuit tin under his arm.
1: No, that would be a (laughs) a quite vicious fight, wouldn't it? And it is interesting what you say, though. This isn't only about protecting the nation's art but this is about protecting the monarchy as well then because if there is a situation where a new monarch needs to be crowned and London has been bombed to smithereens and this is what you need this is the the sovereign in many ways
2: well that's right the royal family if you like are just another collection in some cases they are the top constitutional collection so they themselves need to be protected
1: some more than others
2: Some more than than others, (laughs) Um, but not just them, but also the regalia that goes with them, The the symbolic nature of kingship, of, of monarchy needs to be protected as well for the future. So the crown jewels, yes, but also, for example, the coronation chair from Westminster Abbey, the great throne where the monarch is crowned, was evacuated to Gloucester Cathedral, where it was boarded up in a special shack and covered over with sandbags and grew mould, which then had to be removed in a panic when they realised what had happened. But the Stone of Schoon, which is the ceremonial piece of stone, underneath the throne, uh, which again dated back to the Middle Ages and was part of the sacred nature of the throne, that was separated out from the throne and, and hidden in a secret vault inside Westminster Abbey as well. And the location was only known to two people in Canada, including the Canadian Premier, so that if Britain was invaded and overrun, the Canadians would know what had happened to the coronation chair. And should Britain then be liberated, they would be able to find it again.
1: Wow, because that was the plan, right? If Britain had been invaded, then everyone would be popping off to Canada. And I suppose you'd perhaps need to uh, well, rebuild the monarchy and government over there.
2: Yeah, that was the plan. But of course, evacuating everything across to Canada was just completely out of the question. That was something that the trustees of the National Gallery were trying to persuade Kenneth Clark to do with 2,000 of the world's greatest paintings, you know, Turner's, Constables, Van Dykes, and all the rest of it. But that would have just been much too risky. So in the end, having, as a first phase, stored a lot of these collections above ground There was a second phase around 1941, where a lot of these collections then went underground as well, went through a series of other moves. And in the case of the National Gallery, they moved into a mountain called Manod Moor in the centre of Snowdonia in North Wales. A slate mine was converted for the use of the gallery and brick sheds with environmental controls in them were set up where the paintings could be stored in perfect safety And a conservation studio was established there, a library, and so on. And all done in total secrecy with the custodians and the curators uh, billeted uh, in the nearby town of blynau So that's a, a rather extraordinary story as well.
1: That is incredible, but it sounds like it's a little less about the threat of aerial bombardment and perhaps now a little bit more about the threat of Hitler's pending invasion, Operation Sealine, is this now what they're worried about about Nazis taking to the streets of Britain and hunting down some of these key pieces of of art, of our history, of the archives of, of everything that told the history of Britain?
2: Yeah, I mean there are three main risks really. First of all, there's the bombing, and initially it was thought that really the southeast was going to be vulnerable to that, but everywhere else would be less vulnerable. Of course, with the fall of France, that changed. And the distance that the Luftwaffe would be able to get to expanded once they took over northern French aerodromes and in the low countries and Belgium and so on. And they could get as far as places like Liverpool, which then put North Wales into the picture as well. So everything stored in North Wales above ground suddenly potentially became in danger from aerial bombardment. So that's when the underground plans began. So that's one risk. There's another risk, which is that were there an invasion, then great art treasures might be seized, for example, for Goering's bloated personal collection of Western masterpieces. Or if they were so-called degenerate art, you know, unsuitable topics, topics prescribed by the Nazis or by artists prescribed by the Nazis, then they may have been confiscated, they may have been deliberately destroyed. So that was another risk. And then there was a third risk, which was, if you like, almost as bad. And you, you sort of alluded to it there. This idea that Britain's national treasures might somehow be used to shore up the Nazi regime from a propaganda point of view, used to shore up a perverted racial ideology, such as happened, for example, with the Bayer tapestry in France, when Himmler discovered that the biotapestry you know had come to light in Normandy, um, that piqued the interest of him and the Ananerber. And the biotapestry itself was subjected to scientific experimentation really. It was unsown, the interior was photographed extensively and x-rayed because it's not a tapestry, it's a, an embroidery with a fabric backing. So it's a sort of two layers of fabric. So that was unstitched, cameras put inside. It was heavily examined and researched. Then it was sewn up again, which seems extraordinary. This amazingly delicate piece of textile uh, from the 11th century. And it was reclassified, not as a, a Norman artefact, but as a Viking artifact, an example of Germanic culture. So, you know, you could see that happening to a number of great British objects, such as perhaps the Sutton Hoo treasure, which had just been excavated in the days before the war and had just been acquired by the British Museum and had gone into the London Underground in the days before the war. The Sutton Hoo treasure is perhaps the most important treasure hoard discovered in Britain ever. Uh, it's an Anglo-Saxon hoard of, um, of armour, of wonderful decorative brooches and uh, grave goods, basically. It was a whole ship discovered, or the outline of a ship was discovered in Suffolk, that's eastern England, in a field in eastern England under a burial mound. And the imprint of the ship remained in the sand and the actual grave objects were retrieved. And in fact, there's been a, a recent film on Netflix. If you've got Netflix, then I recommend The Dig with Rafe Fines, which is the story of the uncovering of the Sutton Hoo treasure. But it is now one of the the great sites of the British Museum. And so you could see that potentially this wonderful collection from the pre-Norman era in Britain, the Anglo-Saxon era, could have been used in a more sinister way than one would hope it would be.
1: Because all of this can be turned and twisted towards a, a sort of supremacist, Aryan Nordism, in many ways, I suppose. That idea that was core to Nazism as well going forwards. Because the art and artefacts provide history, but that history can be twisted and turned and then provide that so-called legitimacy for Nazi control over Great Britain through our seemingly common heritage, which in in some ways, of course, is correct, and in many, many others is incredibly wrong.
2: Well, and of course, if you seize a nation's cultural artefacts through conquest, then it is a way of demoralising the populace. It's a way of taking away their heritage. It's a way of wiping out part of their history as well. So all of these things have extraordinary resonance in wartime, I think. And the Gestapo Black Book, which was the the pre-invasion handbook, if you like, drawn up for those who uh, were about potentially to invade Britain, uh, listed all of the national museums and galleries and gave the names of their directors and also had a a sort of a brief rundown of, of what the most important items were there. And it's a strange object, the Black Book, but It's really rather strangely cobbled together and actually fairly amateurish, in fact, but it does give a sense of what they felt were priorities, not in terms of looting explicitly, but they certainly had their eye on these national institutions. And certainly some of the curators involved were also listed in the Black Book as being persons of interest who should be arrested on site should invasion occur. So the threat really was real for even seemingly <laughs> seemingly innocuous people such as museum curators. It was real.
1: Now Caroline, you've mentioned that many of these artifacts were buried and that makes the hair stick up on the back of my neck because I remember burying a time capsule a long time ago for unearthing at some point in the future and I couldn't tell you where that is now. So I'm slightly worried that some of these things might have got lost. Was was anything lost? Did we forget about anything?
2: (laughs) No, it wasn't. It wasn't lost. Um, In fact, the archives that I visited are absolutely full of the notebooks and inventories used to check all of the items in and out and listings of paintings, listings of objects with multiple ticks against them in all sorts of different coloured pencils and pens and sewing, showing the different stages at which they moved around the country. It was all done extremely meticulously. And you have to bear in mind that, of course, this is meat and drink to any curatorial operation. Is listing yeah. listing what you've got and then ticking it off. So this is what happened every time something moved. So no, things didn't get lost. And some of these lists are actually unintentionally amusing. So the National Portrait Gallery, for example, which ended up in a Rothschild house Mentmore towers in Buckinghamshire. During the moves there, and in fact, in a second stage move, it also moved down to a quarry in Somerset called Westwood Quarry. Um, different paintings that would never otherwise have been side by side as neighbours in the gallery found themselves side by side in the van. So, you know, you've got stern Mr Gladstone beside a a portrait of some sort of nubile (laughs) nubile 18th century courtesan or something like that. So it's quite, uh, well, I think it's quite fun to think of those moves being unintentionally hilarious.
1: (laughs) I hope that one day someone does an exhibition of the vans and you can curate just what was in each van and put them on the walls and see them all together again, reunited from their wartime experience.
2: <laughs> well, these were railway container vans, so sadly, I don't think they survive. <laughs> but but what does survive, actually, at the Amberley Museum in Sussex is one of the little container vans that were used inside the mountain in Snowdonia by the National Gallery and were pushed around on rails by hand deep into the mountain by the National Gallery warders when they wanted to move things around inside this repository, which was basically a quarter of a mile long. So uh, they made it easier to move things around by actually laying railway tracks inside the mountain.
1: Was that the strangest place, would you say, that things were stored? Or were there stranger places that you've found as you've gone through your research?
2: (laughs) Well, yes, mountains, quarries... Stately homes, castles, the London Underground, which is where the Parthenon marbles went, better known perhaps as the Elgin marbles, although that's inaccurate. These were the main places where things ended up. But one or two curators did take things home to their own houses, actually, in the countryside. But no, I think a slate mine in Snowdonia is probably the most eccentric place things ended up.
1: (laughs) A purposely reformed and built slate mine just for this. It's quite the effort. It really is. It's impressive stuff. Now, I suppose my final question has to be, all of this effort, all of this movement across the country, did it work? Was there occasions where some of these archives were bombed out, were destroyed? And so as a result, by moving these, did this amazing effort save some of our treasures?
2: Yes, it absolutely did. All of the museums and galleries, the National Museums and Galleries in London, were in one way damaged during the war. Um, the worst damage of the Blitz to those institutions was at the Tate Gallery, today Tate Britain, where if you walk along the side of the building, you can still see the pop marks from the bombing. A whole wing of the Tate was just blown to pieces. The Imperial War Museum, somewhat ironically, itself had some of the worst damage. At the British Museum, an entire book repository was burned out on the worst night of the Blitz. Westminster Abbey took a direct hit right through the lantern over the Central Crossing. So yes, it absolutely is the case that had these items stayed in London, they would have perished. And for some of the museums, the damage was so great that it wasn't really repaired fully until the 1960s. If you visit the Victoria and Albert Museum today in South Kensington, the damage to the walls is still there on one side, and they've actually turned that into their war memorial. There's an inscription carved around the holes in the stonework which is really very moving
1: i cannot wait to go and visit that next time i'm in london thank you so much caroline but tell us where can people read more about this amazing history
2: my book national treasures saving the nation's art in world war ii is available from all good bookshops and from the usual online retailers as well perfect
1: caroline thank you you so much for coming on the history hit warfare podcast thanks so much for listening and if you want more you can now subscribe to our brilliant warfare wednesday's newsletter via the link in the show notes get cutting-edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week every week for free enjoy